To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. As uh, Rachel said at the start, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the staff at Trinity City, and it's lovely to be with you here this morning. Uh, it's been about a year since I was here last, and some things have changed significantly since then. Um, last time I was here, you were looking for a senior pastor, so delighted, of course, that Chris and Norella are here. Chris is on holidays this week, in case you're wondering where he is. Uh, the other thing that's changed, uh, at least for me, is uh, Mark Curran has uh, joined you here, which I'm just so thrilled about. Mark was a ministry apprentice uh, with us down in the city a number of years ago, and it's just wonderful to see the way in which he's been welcomed into this family. Um, looking around, I can see lots of old, sorry, lots of familiar faces. <laughs> I make that mistake every time, lots of familiar faces, but also lots of people I've not met before. So uh, it's wonderful to see that uh, actually the reason this church is here is to try and reach out into this community. So I trust we might have a chance to meet up afterwards. Can I ask you please to take out your leaflets? You'll see on the inside left cover an outline and also an insert that has the Bible reading in front of you along with another passage and some questions. Maybe if you put them together like that in front of you, you'll therefore have both the Bible reading and an outline and that will help you to follow along uh, for the next little while. I'm, I'm dropping into a series about shepherds, I understand, uh, which I'm really glad to be able to talk about. So sorry, not the shepherding part, because I know nothing at all about agriculture, but um, about what the Bible has to say about leadership. So let me lead us in prayer, and then um, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We pray that as we reflect on it, that you might speak with us this morning and point us towards the Lord Jesus, uh, the chief shepherd of the flock. Amen. Uh, well, in many ways, uh, the topic that I'm going to tackle today is perhaps the hardest one for a Christian leader to speak on. It's the topic of humility. Uh, it's hard to speak on, of course, uh, because, well, there's a great risk of hypocrisy in someone speaking on this. 
Uh, for those of you who know me, and some of you I've known for many years, I wonder if you were given five adjectives to describe Jeffrey Lynn, if the word humility would feature in that list. And sadly, I suspect it wouldn't. Uh, culturally, we Australians, uh, we value humility very highly. Uh, it's true, we admire great athletes, but if they're arrogant, we'll never love them and we won't forgive them if they stuff up. Thankfully, this talk on humility is not about me. It's not about my example. It's not about my wisdom. It's about Christ's. So with that in mind, let's get into it. Point one, the big idea, clothe yourselves with humility. Look with me there, if you will, at verses five and six, uh, which I've put in italics. All of you, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Uh, the image here is pretty straightforward. Verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility. Now I love the, I love the image actually, clothing yourselves with humility. Uh, it's a reminder that just as you had to choose what to wear this morning, so you have to make a choice to be humble. This is a reminder to me because yet again, when I've come up here to the hills in the middle of winter, I drove through fog and rain to get here. I remember to bring a jacket for once, so that's a start at least. You have to make a choice about your clothing, so Peter says, you have to make a choice about whether or not you will be humble. That's because, I take it in the end, no one is naturally humble. And of course, in saying no one is naturally humble, I want to distinguish what you might call false humility. False humility is when you know, someone puts themselves down, either because they think they're worthless, which of course is not true, no one is absolutely worthless, or they put themselves down because what they're really looking for, not so subtly, is compliments. They're fishing for people to say nice things about them. That's not the humility that Peter is describing here. Biblical humility doesn't mean underselling yourself. It means acknowledging the sinful part in every one of us, that part which craves other people's approval. And because of that, instead of being honest in our self-assessment, we either downplay or overstate our case. So Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. Of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Much easier said than done. Uh, for some of us, we're thinking, that we're thinking, well, give us an example. Show us an example of someone who did choose to clothe themselves with humility. Well, you notice how the passage began in verse 1. Peter says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. A witness of Christ's sufferings. I wonder if, in fact, what Peter is thinking of when he says, clothe yourself with humility, is he's thinking of the Lord Jesus. And perhaps he's thinking of that episode, the remarkable episode in John 13, uh, the night before Jesus goes to his death at what we have come to call the Last Supper. Most of us know how this story goes. At the beginning of the meal, it was customary for, the, for someone to wash people's feet, having travelled a large distance to be there. It was a way of showing respect and kindness to those who had gathered. And on this particular meal, there's no servant available to discharge this duty. It was actually the most menial of tasks, so menial that the Jews uh, reserved it for the non-Jewish slaves in the household, 
foot washing. But there's no one there. And I presume as the meal begins, everyone sits around wondering what's going to happen and then no one puts their hand up until, incredibly, Jesus does. Jesus, the one who is their leader, he is the one who washes everyone else's feet. What's extraordinary is that even as Jesus starts, no one offers to take over for him. Uh, I understand that a couple of weekends ago you had a regional conference here and uh, you were very fortunate to have Peter Jensen join you. Uh, I'm sure for those of you who were there, it would have been a terrific time. Uh, Peter was actually the fellow who ordained me, my Bible college principal, uh, a wonderfully godly man, and a retired archbishop. My guess is that if at the course of the weekend he had started to wash your feet, I presume someone here would have taken over, would have at least offered, you know, Peter, you're a retired man, you don't need to do that anymore. Someone else could do that task. Can you imagine how extraordinary it was for Jesus to do this thing in humility for his disciples? And at the end, of course, the punchline comes. Jesus says, I've washed your feet. I'm about to leave, so now you wash each other's feet. Follow my example. The irony, of course, is that if Jesus had said, come and wash my feet, I presume they would have fallen over themselves to do it. But wash each other's. Oh, surely not. Uh, The point of of the story is devastatingly simple. If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the one who made everything by a word, who sustains all of creation by his word, if he is prepared to do that for us, nothing ought to stop us from doing likewise for others. It's the principle that you see time and time again in Scripture that what drives our relationship to each other is actually our relationship to God. What drives our relationship and our attitude towards each other is always our relationship to God. Now, Peter actually gives another reason to clothe ourselves with humility. More than just following Christ's example, Peter actually reminds us of the great reward So look again at verse 6, pick it up at verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So the reason why we're to clothe ourselves with humility is because ultimately what we desire is God's approval and God's commendation and God's reward. That's what enables us to submit ourselves to others, knowing what God will do for us. And so I thought at this point, I'd just read out a short passage from Philippians 2 that brings together those two ideas, Christ's example and also the promise of being humble. It's printed there on your handout. Let let me read it out. Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The big idea, like Christ, clothe yourselves with humility. Well, let's come to point two then, how to show humility in the church. And this is the part particularly where we're going to focus in on that shepherd image that we've been, you've been reflecting on these last few weeks. You see, in verses 1 through 5, in the first part of the passage, what Peter does is very helpfully give two worked examples of humility in the church. Actually, he divides the whole church into two categories. You'll see there, it's in bold, they're the elders amongst you and there are those who are younger. The elders amongst you and those who are younger, and in a sense, that covers everybody in the church. The really interesting thing is that Peter writes the one message to everybody, That is, everyone hears what everyone else hears. I guess if you want to give a modern day example, it's not like they're private messages between Peter and one group and the other. It's more like a Facebook post that the whole world gets to see. I presume that's because Peter is reminding us that the key to humility is openness and accountability. It's not secrecy. Or to put it slightly differently, if you are to grow in humility, you need the entire church. You cannot be more humble on your own. Well, let's see what he has to say. Firstly, verses 1 through 4, to the elders amongst you, and then verse 5, to those who are younger. Now, let's start with the elders amongst you. Let me read the passage again, and then I'll say a few things about it. Verse 1, to the elders amongst you, Peter says... I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Uh, Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Okay, firstly, uh, just to explain what elders are, uh, elder here literally means an overseer. Uh, In some older translations, you'd see the word bishop is an example of it. Uh, Elder means an overseer. Um, In our modern context, for simplicity, I'm going to equate that to pastor, although it could mean more than that. It really means anyone in leadership. But I want to talk about pastor just for the sake of clarity. What Peter is saying here is to the elders amongst us, humility means you will never be promoted above the rank of second in charge. You will never be promoted above the rank of second in charge. That's because elders are referred to there in that first paragraph as shepherds of God's flock, but they are under shepherds. I say that because, well, firstly, whose flock is it? Well, it's not theirs, it's God's, verse 2. But secondly, there is a chief shepherd. He's mentioned there in verse 4. That's Jesus. So for any Christian leader, specifically for any pastor, at best, you will only ever be second in charge. There is always a chief shepherd over the flock. So how then ought ought an under-shepherd behave? Well, I think there's probably two things to look out for. Uh, One is a little bit trivial, the other is more profound. Here's the trivial thing to look for. 
Um, a pastor probably ought never talk about my church. Now, don't get me wrong, um, a sense of ownership and responsibility is a good thing. But at the end of the day, pastor must never forget whose church it is. After all, who died for the church? And so to whom does the church belong? Well, it's Jesus. He is the chief shepherd. And I wonder even if referring to our church would be a better language to hear from those in leadership than my church. That's a bit of a trivial way in which you see this play out. More profoundly, the mark of a good under-shepherd, I think, is that when they leave, you remember less of them and more of the chief shepherd, more of Jesus. Now, that's a bit tricky at one level because, um, as a pastor, I know that people love to hear personal stories about the pastor. Nothing else that makes them accessible, helps, you know, ensure that they're not being hypocritical in what they say, and that's not a bad thing. But ultimately, what does it matter? Your pastors come and go, but the chief shepherd, he is the one who is always over the flock. There was a guy before Chris, wasn't there? Yeah, I, don't, I can't remember his name anymore. No, that's not true. It was Cameron. I know that. Now, what Peter does in verses 2 through 4 is that he'll give three contrasts to describe what godly behaviour of elders looks like or what good behaviour from pastors and shepherds, under-shepherds looks like. And each time there's a negative and a positive. And actually, if you take the Bible reading and turn it over on your back, it's actually listed there, each of those three contrasts. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over the flock, but being examples. Three ways to describe how an under-shepherd or a leader of God's people ought to act. Let me say something about each of those. Firstly, not because you must, but because you're willing. Not because you must, but because you're willing. That is, to shepherd God's flock, not because you have to, but because you want to. Now, of course, the big question is, how can you tell? How do you know if that's what someone is like? How do you know what their motives are? Well, here's one suggestion. If you're trying to work out what's going on in the shepherd's, in the under-shepherd's mind, maybe you could ask, how do they recruit others? Uh, good pastors are always trying to recruit people for ministry, right? They're always trying to encourage you to do this or that, trying to get you to do things and be involved in the life of the church. That, that's a good thing, of course. But I wonder if when the pastor asks you to, some, to do something, if they say, I need you to do this. So that in the end, you feel slightly guilty if you decline, as if you're letting them down. When in the end, you answer only to the chief shepherd, don't you? Not because you must, but because you're willing. Secondly, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Again, how do you tell if a leader of God's people is pursuing dishonest gain, which they shouldn't be, as opposed to being eager to serve? Well, again, clearly there's some obvious examples here, right? There are the fiscal situations where you see terribly some of the examples of the stereotypically American televangelist who's always asking for more money and you know that they're spending it on themselves. But I guess more dangerously even is when you see someone who is always seeking praise and approval of others, commendation of their ministry, 
because that can be equally alluring. Uh, let me confess, this is a particularly, particularly a problem for pastors when pastors get together. Now, for most of you, you think that would have to be the most boring convocation in the world, and oftentimes it is. But when pastors get together, they always find a way in which to tell you about just how well their ministry is going, even if they dress it up. You know, look, my church tripled last week. I don't know how, it must be the Holy Spirit, but it just keeps growing and I don't know what's going on. Are they always letting you know why failures are someone else's fault? Not because you must, but because you're willing, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Thirdly, Peter says, not lording it over the flock, but being examples. Not lording it over the flock, but being an example. It's a powerful image, isn't it? Not lording it over others. Now, we Australians, we're generally pretty good at rising up against those who are too big for their boots. But how do you know if someone thinks they're above reproach? Well, one way, I think, is how they respond to rebuke and to correction. Do they get defensive? Or do they take the initiative in asking for feedback because they long to serve in a way that is more edifying? Well, given all of that, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, who in their right mind would ever want to be a pastor? Who'd ever want to be an under-shepherd of God's flock? And there's a couple of reasons. One is, if we'd begun at the beginning of 1 Peter, we would have heard Peter say that God's people are foreigners and exiles in this world. That is, as a community, we need good leadership if we are to survive in the context that we are in. But actually, the reason given in the passage as to why some must be pastors, why some must be elders and overseers, is because of verse 4. Verse 4, because the chief shepherd has promised a crown of glory that will never fade away. This crown of glory has been secured by his blood, which means that irrespective of any hardship in ministry... The end point is guaranteed. And so in verse 6 then, as we saw before, Peter says to elders, but in fact to all of us, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Don't ever doubt it. It can feel like it's a long way away, but Christ will return. It will happen. And his reward is great. Well, that's what Peter has to say to those who are the elders amongst us. He also has something to say to those who are younger. As I tried to say, the younger idea here is not so much youthful in age, although it's often that. It actually means everyone else. And here what Peter says, verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders... You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Peter is telling us that humility means submission. Submission, in fact, in exactly the same way as back in chapter 2, he said that Christians are to submit to the authorities of the land, the way in which he said slaves are to submit to their masters. 
To submit means, in the end, to place yourself under someone, to do their bidding, to follow their lead. And that's what Peter says to all of us with respect to our elders. Again, don't mishear me. That doesn't mean that elders are beyond reproach. It does mean that you ought to question them, persuade them if you can, discuss with them openly and honestly, rebuke if necessary. Remember, the good elders will invite such a critique. But ultimately, submit means to follow their lead. Hard though that might be. Because, well, in the same way is the clue in verse 5. In the same way, your leaders do not answer to you. They answer to the chief shepherd. Well, come to point three, and let me try and draw this all together. Point three, I said, so how humble are you? We've talked a bit about humility, about Christ's example of humility, about what humility might look like in general in the church, but I want to finish by asking specifically, and I guess intentionally of every person here, how humble are you? Now, it kind of feels like a trick question, doesn't it? Because if you said, actually, I'm pretty humble, well, yeah. <laughs> Helpfully, Peter asks us to take what I've called the humility test. The humility test. It's there in verse 7. So look at what he said in verses 5 and 6. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up. So you want to know what it looks like to be a person who has humbled themselves under God's mighty hand? Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I think what Peter is saying here is that if you want to see what a humble person is like, they are someone who has cast their anxieties on the one who cares for us. Peter is saying that humility means trusting that God cares for us, that he knows what's best for us, and that he will sort it out. Now again, don't mishear me. Casting your anxieties on God doesn't mean stop trying it doesn't mean don't bother. It can't mean that. He has just charged the elders and everyone else in the church to act in a particular way. Clothe yourselves with humility. It implies specific and intentional action. But in saying, cast all your anxiety on him who cares for you, Peter is offering a corrective against the independence, which is the basis of how our society operates. What I mean is that in the end, the biggest obstacle to humility is not arrogance or pride. The biggest obstacle to humility is not arrogance or pride. It's self-reliance. It's self-reliance. The thing that most stops us from being humble is thinking, it's up to me. I need to look after myself because no one else is going to do it. And yet, if I can put it this way, 
you couldn't atone for your sin. Christ had to die for that. So why do you revert to self-sufficiency for less important matters? To put it slightly differently, if you can trust Christ with your eternal salvation, why not with your daily circumstances? Even if they are complicated, even if they are very messy. Once again, I'm not saying that someone who casts their anxieties on God says, ah, nothing matters, you know, don't worry, be happy. I'm not saying stop caring. I am saying start trusting. And trusting for good reason. Christ gave his life for you. Which leaves you with a choice to make. Either you bear your burdens or you hand them to Christ. At the bottom of your page there, you'll see a couple of over-coffee questions. These are things you might talk about afterwards. The second one in particular I want to draw your attention to. What's one area in your life where you might actively choose to cast all your anxiety on Christ because he cares for you? All of us will have different answers to that. But perhaps afterwards, rather than just having God's word go in one ear and out the other, perhaps you might talk with someone about an area of your life where you might stop bearing your burdens yourself and start trusting that the God who loves you, that he could have it under control. Can I say that if you're here today as someone who's not a believer, um, then once again to add to Rachel's welcome at the start, um, I know the members of this church are thrilled to have you here. Perhaps you're here at the invitation of a member, maybe you've just been wanting to find out a bit about what Christians believe. Um, this is the reason the church holds its meetings in public actually, because we want others to know about the hope that we have. If that's your circumstance, can I suggest to you that what I've tried to paint for you today is a picture of a better way to live. I'm not talking about a life that's full of naive, blind optimism, but one that is firmly anchored on a solid hope, built on a firm foundation. I'm trying to describe a life where you have chosen not to be overcome with anxiety, not because of your own ability to manage it, but because the one who made all things and who loves you dearly, he says that he cares for you. I said at the start that if you were given five adjectives to describe me, that I feared that one of the words you wouldn't pick would be that of humility. But I do hope that if you got to know me, that one of the five words or adjectives you would pick to describe me uh, would be non-anxious or unstressed. And the reason why I thought I'd tell you that is because, um, despite what I said about personal stories, I'm going to tell you one. Uh, I was very fortunate in that, although I grew up in a family that wasn't Christian, in middle high school, um, friends invited me to a youth group and I came to know Jesus as my saviour and as my Lord. 
But I don't think that ever really took root or I understood what that meant until the end of year 12 and the first day of my final exams. Now, a bit of my background. Um, as you can tell, I'm sort of Chinese. Um, not very right. I look Chinese, but I sound Australian. I was born here. That's because my parents are immigrants, and like most immigrants, actually, um, when they move to a new country, they want a better life for their kids, which usually translates into very high expectations for success for their own children. <laughs> That's not only immigrants, I understand as well, who think that. So, of course, by the time I got to year 12 and my final set of exams, my parents were hoping that I'd do very well, that I might have the opportunities that they didn't have. Uh, and so um, I still remember the day in which I came to my first of my final exams and I turned up on the morning and a guy who I knew at school but wasn't particularly close to came up to me and gave me a piece of paper and said, good luck, Jeff. I went, oh, okay, thanks. And I sat down and I looked at the piece of paper and when I opened it up, it had 1 Peter 5 verse 7 printed on it. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, I didn't know that he was a Christian. I don't know how he knew that I was a Christian. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was something that he just gave to everybody. But I can still remember at that exact moment, first day of my final exam, standing outside the exam room, I still remember thinking, I have a choice. At this point, I either choose the path of self-reliance or I trust that the one who loves me, he has it under control, whatever the outcome. That was a number of years ago. Oh, five, in fact. No, that's not true. <laughs> that was a number of years ago. And it doesn't mean that, therefore, I'm someone who never feels stressed. That's not true. At times, I do. But I think if you got to know me, you'd be able to say that the shape and character of my life reflects someone who is relatively unanxious. The reason for that is not because of my ability. It's because at a young age, I was fortunate to learn something of the great relief in trusting that he cares for me and therefore I can cast my burdens on him. Most of you know that I spend my time working with university students. And what I say to all of them is, my hope and prayer is that you learn this lesson at the start of your life. Don't leave it till the very end. Let me conclude. Come back to the passage one last time. Pick it up at verse 8. Peter has three brief encouragements for us in verses 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Peter's not naive. He knows, he knows it's hard. He says to be alert and of sober mind. He says the devil is at work trying to undermine our confidence that Christ will take care of our anxieties. So do you notice what he says to do? Verse 9, he says, resist him. He doesn't say defeat the devil. That's up to Jesus. He says resist him. Do you notice the way in which we're to do so? You resist the devil by standing firm in the faith, quite literally standing firm in trust. Defeat the devil by trusting in Jesus. 
Uh, unless you think that this test is unique to us, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing similar kinds of sufferings. You're not being singled out particularly, even if it can feel that way at times. But most encouragingly, in verse 10, it's only for a little while. Verse 10, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Feel the contrast, suffering for a little while, eternal glory in Christ. So let me finish by reading out Peter's benediction in verses 10 and 11. As I do, just notice who is the subject of all the verbs, who is the one who does everything. Verse 10, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he loves us, that he has given his life for us, and that he is returning with his great reward. So we pray, help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him, to cast all our anxieties on him and to have a hope that's founded in him. For Jesus' sake, amen.